Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. Vintage Church is a movement of truth, love, and community. For more information, visit VintageChurchNola.com. Here is this week's message. Thank you, Mark. And uh, let's just give another hand for Mark and the worship team and the production team in the back. Uh, I'm pretty sure the right part of the audience can see me through the beautiful design that Pastor John mentioned, but I apologize if you can't. Um, I'm here. I'm Keith Rafferty. If you haven't met me, I just uh, I've been part of Vintage Family since March. I joined Partnership uh, about three months now, and uh, just extremely thankful for this church in general and what it does for the city of New Orleans. I'm a naval officer uh, in, stationed up at the Stennis Space Center. I came from San Diego. Um, I am so honored to be lighting the candle uh, this morning, the Advent candle of hope. Um, so jo- please join me in lighting this candle this morning. Uh, You can follow me along. We're going to be reading Luke 1, verse 26 to 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Please uh, uh, join out loud with me. You can read the following prayer on the slide. Faithful God, we wait for you to come. We know that you will because you already have and because you promised to return. While we wait, send your spirit so that we may grow in grace. Prepare us for your coming, Lord. Amen. Can we thank Keith this morning? Thank you, sir. Well, who's on Team Christmas? Yeah, that's what I thought. If there's one season of the year that people get excited, it's Christmas, right? And so we're excited to kick off this Advent series with you this morning. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. We are going to be this morning in Jeremiah chapter 33. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, lift up your hand and our Connect team would love to get you a copy of God's Word as our gift from us to you. And so we're in this Advent season. We're doing something a little different, right? In our scripture readings, we're reading from uh, the Gospels and the New Testament about the coming of Jesus. But in the sermons, we're going to be preaching from the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament prophets, as they foretell and foretold of the coming of Jesus. And not just the first coming of Jesus, but also his second coming. And that's actually what's pretty interesting as we jump into this Christmas season is that Advent, while yes, it's about Christmas, it's about more than just Christmas. And I'm going to explain a little bit of that to you in just a moment. 
And so when we think about, before we jump into Jeremiah, I want to give you some background about Advent to help you understand kind of the season. When we think about Advent, first it's important, I think, to help us see where it came from. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is the tr- it's translated from the Greek word parousia, meaning presence after absence or arrival. So the word Advent comes, it means this idea of arrival. Now, here's what's important for us. Advent refers not only to the first coming of Jesus, but actually to the second coming of Jesus. So the Advent season in the church, uh, it was designed to be a season of preparation, right? What's the season that comes right before Easter? Lent, right? Lent is that season of preparation leading us up to Easter day. And the same thing is, can be said for the season of Advent. Advent is a season leading us up and preparing us for Christmas day. And so what we're going to be looking at, at in the season of Advent is this season of preparation where we not only celebrate the first coming of Jesus, but we also prepare and anticipate For the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus returns to rule and reign as king. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in this series as we think about Christmas and Advent. I want to share with you a quote from a book on Advent that I've been reading recently that helps us, I think, understand where we are in the grand scheme of Advent and our world. The author says this about uh, Advent and the church. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. And, and over these next few weeks, as we think about Advent and we think about living in that in-between time or that now and not yet time, we're going to cover these important Advent themes, things like hope. Today we're going to talk about hope. Next week it's going to be peace and then joy and love and then on December 23rd, Christ. Now here's the reality, because for many of us in this room, when we think about Christmas, it's a magical season, right? I mean, all of you, Team Christmas, right? You're, in, you're excited, you're getting gifts, you're decorating. We bought our Christmas tree yesterday. It's the first year ever that I can't get the stupid thing to stand up, right? I, anybody ever had that problem before? You cannot get the tree. I mean, I'm literally about to burn the thing. But anyways, I'm team Christmas. I'm excited, okay? So you're excited. You have all of these things, you know, when you have with children, they're so excited for Santa and Christmas and all of these sorts of things. But here's the reality. The, the, the season of Christmas, the season of Advent, while it's so magical and so exciting, can be one of the most difficult seasons of the year, where people are, are dealing with pain and hurt, frustration, loss, sadness. And so we're living in this in-between time, right, where we know that we have hope. We know that we have peace. We know that we have joy. We know that we have love in Christ, But in the midst of of all that we're enduring and dealing with, we don't feel all that hopeful. We don't feel all that joyful. We don't feel all that peaceful and loving. And so what can we learn from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets in particular, 
about in this, in this time when we're kind of living in between that first coming and anticipating Jesus' return, how can we live with hope? How can we have hope? So what I want us to see this morning, I want us to think about this. I want us to think about Jeremiah 33, and we're going to read Jeremiah 33, and I want us to, this is the, the kind of the concept of the idea I want us to wrap our minds around. Advent reminds us to remain hopeful because of God's faithfulness to uphold his promise to send Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Advent reminds us to remain hopeful because of God's faithfulness to uphold his promise to send Jesus. Let's look at Jeremiah 33, starting in verse 14. This is what the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah. God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Now before we kind of unpack this and look at the hope that we have, I think it's important for us to understand the prophet Jeremiah. Some of these prophets, many of us maybe have never read about or never read the whole book. And so understanding the context for us is so important. Jeremiah was born just kind of northeast of Jerusalem. And he was not only a prophet, but he was also a priest. And so he was kind of serving in these two different roles in the life of Israel. Now, Jeremiah lived at a unique time in the life of Israel. The Assyrian Empire was kind of falling to the Babylonian Empire. The Assyrians had come in and conquered all of the northern kingdom that we know as Israel. The, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, where the temple of God was and where the presence of God dwelt, was still there. But the Babylonians were coming in to conquer Judah and basically destroy the temple and destroy the city of Jerusalem. Now all of this is happening and Jeremiah is serving as a priest and a prophet. Now here's what is really crazy, okay? So the whole book of Jeremiah is kind of this balance between God bringing judgment on the people and then God promising hope that there's going to be a future restoration, that God is going to make all things new. Now here's what's crazy about the book of Jeremiah. Literally, if you look over just a couple of chapters before Jeremiah 33, it gives the context in which Jeremiah is living at this point. So not only is he a prophet and a priest, not only have the Babylonians come in and conquered, they've literally began to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And while all of this is going on, Jeremiah is sitting in jail. He's sitting in jail, and while he's sitting in jail, his entire city and the temple, which was so important to the people of Israel, is being totally destroyed. Now think about that in light of what God brings to Jeremiah in chapter 33. 
Literally, while all of this is going on, while seemingly there is absolutely no hope, everything that Jeremiah, everything that the people of Israel have known is being totally destroyed. And God comes to Jeremiah with this word, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of David. I mean, can you see that? For you and I, we're in the midst, right? Whatever's going on in your life, put yourself there. The pain, the struggle, the suffering, the frustration, whatever it is, you're right there in the midst. And in the midst of that, it's very difficult, almost impossible to see any hope. You're just like Jeremiah. There's pain and there's suffering, there's hurt. But in the midst of that, God is trying to provide you hope through his son, Jesus Christ. So this morning, what I want us to think about is this. How is Jesus the hopeful fulfillment of God's promises? That if God has made these promises, and Advent reminds us to look forward to those and to be hopeful of God's faithfulness, how is Jesus the hopeful fulfillment of God's promises? The first thing that I want us to see this is this. Jesus is the promised eternal king. Jesus is the promised eternal king. If you go back and you look at just these first few verses, in verse 15, God promises Jeremiah, in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. In verse 17, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now for you and I, right, for you and I, those words, those ideas might seem very foreign. But for the people of Israel, this was well known for them. For Jeremiah, it was well known that God had made a promise to David that there would always be a king over Israel. Look at this promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says this to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom whom I put away from before you. Now, you read all of that. Okay, God, what's going on? Because it sounds like you're promising an heir from David, that a natural-born, biological son is going to take the throne. And yes, that's true. Solomon comes, and he's the king after David. But look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. These promises are coming through God is telling them to Jeremiah. He's remembering this prophecy, this promise from God. In the midst of there being no king or minimally a puppet king and his entire world being turned upside down. God's reminding Jeremiah of the promise that he made to the people of Israel, to David himself, that the people of Israel will always have a king. That there will be this promised eternal king. 
This idea of a branch or the, the, the righteous branch to spring up. Think of it literally as a, a family tree that up from David, out of David, this king will arise. And what does God say this king will do? If you look in this passage in verses 15 and 16, the, the, the text says, God says, He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. This king will execute justice and righteousness. When you think about that, think about it like this, that the king will protect the good and judge the evil, right? Anybody in power that's representing the people, that's serving the people, their responsibility is to protect the good of the people and of the kingdom, to judge evil in the world, that things might be right. And when they do that, when they execute justice and righteousness, then for these people, Israel will be safe. They will be saved and they will provide security and safety that the people could literally be able to dwell in the land securely. So this is what God says this king will do. What I want us to look at, I want us to turn and look at Ephesians 1 verses 20 through 23 and see how Jesus is this promised eternal king. Paul writes this in Ephesians 1 He's talking about God as the subject. He says that God, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of God being a place of power and authority. And who is Jesus over? He doesn't have anybody that he relates to, that he speaks to, that is his overseer. No, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Jesus is the eternal promised king. Jesus is the one that's coming from the line of David who is going to execute justice and righteousness, who is going to save, who is going to provide safety for you and I. This this is the one that God was promising through Jeremiah. That yes, in our world, I want you to think about this, in our world, sometimes it's difficult, right? We're in this now and not yet, we're this in-between time where We're seeing all of the pain and the suffering and we're experiencing all of those things. And okay, God, if there is this hope, where is it at? And what Paul answers in this passage is that the resurrection proves for us who Jesus is. That he not only came to this earth, died a death that we deserve to die, but then resurrected from that. And then Jesus is never dying again. He's eternal. He lives forever. And by by sitting at the right hand of God is serving as our eternal king. So now he rules and we're waiting for him to return when he will consummate his kingdom. One author put it like this. The hope of the final victory is so much more vivid because of the unshakable firm conviction that the battle that decides the victory has already taken place. 
There's a story about in World War II that deep in the, the heart of Germany, there was a concentration camp that was serving as a POW camp. And at that POW camp, there were American soldiers and there were British soldiers. And life was so difficult and, and dire that these men were literally thinking about taking their own lives. And so the Germans made a deal with the British and the Allied forces to send chaplains to that POW camp to care for these uh, prisoners of war. And so these two men volunteered. They were Scottish um, chaplains, and they came. And, and so the, the one camp, the British were on one end, and the, the Americans were on the other end. And right in the middle was a fence that they couldn't come to. But the chaplains were allowed once a day to come to the middle of the fence and chat for a little bit and then go back to the soldiers. Well, unbeknownst to the Germans, the Americans had a small little radio. And so every day they heard updates about what was going on in the war. And so the one chaplain that was with the Americans would hear about this news and take that news to the other chaplain for the British soldiers. So literally this went on for months at, at end. And, and there came this moment one day when on the little radio the Americans heard that the Germans had surrendered. And so that day, these two chaplains meet in the middle of this, where this fence is. And the one chaplain tells the other chaplain the news, that the war is over, that Germany has surrendered, and that the Allied forces are victorious. So the one chaplain who delivered the message stays there. The other chaplain walks back to the British army to tell them this news. And the one chaplain just waits for a little bit. And all of a sudden, there is this like loud applause and uproar and, and because they, they, the British have realized that we've won the war, that this is over. But here's the thing. The soldiers who were at that POW camp, the German soldiers, did not know about this. So literally, day one passed. Nothing changed. Day two passed. Nothing changed. Day three passed. Nothing changed. All These prisoner wars were still POWs in this camp. And on day four, these Americans and these British prisoners of wars, they, 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 they woke up, there was no German soldiers around. The gates were open, and they were free men. One, one of the, the chaplains said this, listen, while, while some of us, some of them didn't recognize it and didn't realize it, or it seems like freedom came on day four, the men actually felt free on day one when they learned about the fact that the war was over. And it was just, it took just three more days for it to come to fruition when they could actually walk out free men. And for you and I, the kingdom of God is just like that. Right? We know that the war is over because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're waiting in this now, not yet, knowing that the war is over, but recognizing that we're still living with brokenness and hurt and pain. But we have hope because we know a day is coming when the enemy will be completely defeated, Jesus will return, and we will be victorious. And the hope that we, that we have now, that the you and I have, will come to fruition. And the hope becomes reality. That's what God is promising through the prophet Jeremiah. Not just to the people of Israel, but 
to you and I, that although the kingdom is hidden, Jesus now rules and reigns and allows us to live with hope and that knowing that one day Jesus will return and he will return in glory and power. And when Jesus returns, he will judge the living and the dead. Christ and his people will be vindicated. Satan and the wicked will be punished. And Jesus will reign with peace forever. So regardless of what you're going through in life, remembering that in this moment, while it looks like all hope is lost, while it looks like there's no way out, there's no victory, while it looks like God might not be in control, you have to remember and know that Jesus is sitting on his throne ruling and reigning, not over your life, but over every single thing in our world. And you have hope to to believe and to trust, to know that anything that you're going through, the hurt that you might have experienced, the, the ways that you might have been wrong, the brokenness of our world, that when Jesus returns, all of those things will be made right. And the hope that we hope with will become the reality in which we live. That's the kind of hope that you and I can have because we know that Jesus is our promised eternal king. But God doesn't just promise that Jesus will be our promised eternal king. He also says this, that Jesus is the promised eternal priest. Look at verse 18 again. He says, God says this, The Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. And again, for you and I, This is kind of foreign language because we don't go and take sacrifices to priests on on our behalf before God. But in, in the Israelites' world and in their culture, this was huge. The priest, the, the high priest was the one that was the intermediary between the people and God. The one that approached God on behalf of the people. And by offering sacrifices, their sin was removed and the wrath of God against them was appeased, was taken away. And so what what God is promising Jeremiah here, telling Jeremiah, this is so important, is that you will always have a priest. And think about this. This is in the moment in which not only all of Jerusalem, but the temple of God is literally being destroyed. So if there's no temple, guess what? There's no need for a priest. But if there's no temple and there's no need for a priest, how can you and I be made right with God? And what God is promising through Jeremiah is that he will make a way that there will be an eternal priest. Look at Psalm 110, verse 4. The psalmist writes this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest in the time of Abraham. And the psalmist is using this to prophesy about Jesus. And why this is so important is because there was the the, the priest of Melchizedek and then there was the Levitical priest, the priest from the lineage of Aaron. And what the psalmist is writing about is saying this, is listen, the, the, the priest from Aaron, the Levitical priest, they're going to die. They're not going to last eternally, but this Melchizedek priesthood will last forever. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, the writer says this about Jesus as the promised eternal priest. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, Jesus that is, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did not once for all, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, you and I, we have this promised priest in Jesus who doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself before he offers sacrifices for us because he is perfect, holy before the Lord. And it only takes one priest because Jesus is eternal. We just talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? That the death of Jesus satisfied our sin. That there's no need for you and I to go to some sort of temple and to offer sacrifices that God might take away our sin. But when when God looked upon Jesus who was perfect and he took on our sin, in his death our sins are removed. And in his death, when our sins are removed, the wrath of God before us is removed. And we know that what Jesus did on the cross for us was enough because, did he stay dead? No, he resurrected from the grave. And in his resurrection, he defeated sin once and for all. And God vindicated him in his resurrection. That his death, burial, and resurrection was enough to save us from our sin. You and I, we can have hope because of this. That yes, there is a need to be made right before God. That's what God is telling Jeremiah. Listen, there's a need for a priest who will offer these burnt offerings and these burnt sacrifices because God must be made right with man. The only way to be reconciled, the only way to take care of our sin problem is that sin is punished and paid for. But what we do over and over again in our own power cannot save us. Jesus on the cross as the perfect sacrifice saved us. And now you and I, in the midst of whatever is going on in your life, can know that you can be reconciled with God. That you can have in the midst of anything going on, hope. And that when Jesus returns you know you will be completely restored. That broken relationship that you've been dealing with, that hurt or that pain that you've endured, all of those things, when Jesus returns, will be made right. The hope that you've been living with will become reality. Your your faith will no longer just be faith, but it'll be sight. Because when Jesus returns, he makes all things new. 
So for you and I, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do right now when we're hurting, when we're in pain, when we're struggling, when we're frustrated, when we don't know what to do? How in the midst of all of this do we remain hopeful? I want to share with you just four simple points that I think provide helpful application in our lives. Number one, how do we remain hopeful? We trust Jesus. For some of us, what this means is there's never been a moment in your life when you recognized your need for Jesus. There's never been a moment in your life when you came to this realization that you are standing before a holy God, broken and sinful, and that the only way to be made right, the only way to be reconciled with God is to repent of your sins, to turn away from those sins, and in faith, trust Jesus. And for some of you, what that means in this moment is that that is your opportunity to trust Jesus for the first time in your life, reaching out to God and saying, God, forgive me of my sin. I believe in Jesus. I believe that the work that he did on the cross is enough to save me. I trust you. For some of you in this room, that is your moment of trusting. That's the hope that you need, and that's when you trust in Jesus, the hope you will receive. For some of us in this room, we know Jesus, but it's coming back to that moment of trust, that element of trust, that whatever's going on in your life, that you can know and trust that you have hope in Jesus. That regardless of the circumstances, right, regardless of what's going on around you, that you can know that you have hope because you trust in Jesus. Just this past week, we, we um, passed the, the mark of my, my mother-in-law's one-year death. And as I was processing and reading about, you know, Advent and, and, and Jeremiah and thinking about Christmas and thinking about hope, I, I, I literally, I just thought to myself, I don't know how anyone has hope outside of Jesus. And it's returning back again to this principle that the only way that you and I can remain hopeful is to trust Jesus. How do we remain hopeful? Number two, we worship Jesus. If Jesus is the promised eternal king, if Jesus is the promised eternal priest, then he deserves our worship. And we worship him because he is the God that we worship and the God who saved us, the God who gives us hope. For some of us in this room, listen, this is what it means. If you're struggling to trust Jesus in your everyday, regular life, perhaps you need to worship Jesus. Because as you worship Jesus, you're reminded, even though it's difficult, you're reminded of who he is and why he can be trusted. So how do you remain hopeful? You trust Jesus, you worship Jesus. Number three, you be the church of Jesus. Some of us right now are looking for hope. Whatever we're going through in life, we're struggling, it's difficult, it's a challenge. And when we look around us, we have a very difficult time 
of finding hope anywhere. Here's the reality. If there should be any place that's like the hub of hope in our world, should it not be the church of Jesus Christ? Should the church not be the place where if you're looking for hope, you know where to turn to? And so for some of us in this room, we know the hope, we trust the hope, we're living in that hope, but other people around us are struggling to find that hope. So for those of us searching for hope, reach out. Who's the person in your life that you know that you can go and talk to, that can pray with you, that can just be there, be a presence in the midst of hurt and suffering and challenges? You've got to stop isolating yourself. And you've got to reach out to other people. If you're in the room and you have hope, that means you've got to be open and available and ready to to be there to pray for somebody, to, to, to make a meal for somebody, to listen to somebody, to simply care for them. Listen, we're the, we're the hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ, right? And if, if that's the case, sometimes we are the vehicle by which people experience hope in this life. And so if we want to remain hopeful, we be the church of Jesus. Lastly, how do we remain hopeful? We patiently await the return of Jesus. Advent season for me is that hurry up and wait. You know what I'm talking about? You're like you're doing something and you, you know you've got, it's got to get done or it's got to happen and it's going to happen. And so it's like, but you've got to hurry up and do it. But you know you've got to wait. That's, the timing is not on you. So Advent season for me is hurry up and wait. And so for us in this room, what that means is that hope is here. Hope is present in Jesus. But part of that trusting in Jesus is that we would patiently await the return of Jesus. That whatever we're dealing with, whatever we're working through, whatever struggles or challenges or even whatever blessing we have in our life is knowing that because Jesus has come, because of the Christmas story, because of all of the hope that we have because of Jesus' first coming, we patiently await his return, knowing that his return is going to bring to fruition the hope that we have now. That's why we can have hope. That's why we can trust God. Because we know that Jesus has come. God promised, Jeremiah 33, God makes many promises about the coming of Jesus. Jesus has come. We have a king that rules on our behalf. We have a priest who has made sacrifice for us. We can be made right with God. If God has done all of that in Jesus... Can we not trust that Jesus will come again and that when he comes again, everything will be made right and the hope you have now will become the reality in which you live? That's the kind of hope that we have in Jesus. And so let's be hopeful people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your hope. Thank you for the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. God, help each and every single one of us in this room to know that hope, to trust that hope, 
to lean into that hope, to share that hope, and to patiently await for the day when that hope becomes our reality. Father, help us now as we respond to you, God. May we be obedient to whatever you're calling us to, whatever you're challenging us to. Help us to listen to you and do as you say. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.